This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Almost one quarter of jobs in the Wisconsin Department of Corrections are unfilled, and maximum security facilities in Portage and Waupun are currently operating with only half of their target staffing levels. There are around 1,100 job openings for the two facilities. These numbers affect incarcerated people who say that they've had to spend longer hours locked in their cells due to lack of personnel to watch them while they are out, reports the Appleton Post percent. Legislators approved a raise in guards pay as part of the 2021 state budget to help fill vacancies and are also considering another bill to raise the wages again. The wording of a 2020 ballot question over whether to enshrine the rights of crime victims is up for debate before the state Supreme Court, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. In spring 2020, the ballot question, known as Marcy's Law, was approved by 75% of voters across the state. It asked voters essentially to give victims of crimes extra protections and to enshrine that protection in Wisconsin's Constitution. In fall 2020, a Dane County judge found that the Marcy's Law ballot question was improperly worded, saying it should have been broken into two sections and did not sufficiently spell out the potential effects on people who are accused of crimes. The decision was appealed, and now that appeals court has asked the state Supreme Court to decide. The state's highest court still has to decide whether to take the case or send it back to an appeals court for a decision. The project director for the Foxconn development in Mount Pleasant is consistently billing taxpayers for 40-hour work weeks, even though it's unknown how that time is being spent. WPR reports that Claude Louis is a contracted consultant with the engineering firm Kapoor & Associates, working in Mount Pleasant Village Hall and makes around $175 an hour. When his time card is compared to his work calendar, though, it is unclear how he is spending his 40-hour work weeks. On November 1st, for example, Louis' calendar showed one 90-minute meeting with Foxconn, yet he billed the city for nine hours of work. Village Administrator Maureen Murphy says that there are no discrepancies between what he bills the village for and the work that he does for the village. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services announced today that FEMA will be sending a team of doctors to Green Bay to assist the city's response to COVID-19. The 20-person team from the U.S. Navy will provide support for hospitals that are at or near capacity. As of Friday, there were 1,664 Wisconsinites hospitalized with the virus, with 423 people in intensive care. That is an increase of 258 people since the beginning of this month. Across the state, 96% of intensive care beds are currently in use. Dane County Health Authorities say at least 150 cases of the Omicron variant of COVID-19 have been detected in the county. That's an increase from just five days ago, when the first three cases of Omicron were detected in the county. On Monday, Dane County only had 19 confirmed cases of that variant. Public health authorities are pleading for folks to get vaccinated and boosted, avoid indoor gatherings, and get tested before any gatherings. They're also forecasting a rapid spread of the Omicron variant throughout the holiday season. Public Health Madison-Dane County has several options to get a COVID-19 vaccine. You can get vaxxed at the South Park Street Clinic. Its hours are Mondays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Testing is available at this site. It will be open Christmas Eve morning, but not on Christmas Day. The East Washington Avenue Clinic offers vaccinations on Tuesdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Appointments are recommended, but are not required. To book an appointment there, call 
1-800-273-6328. There is also a walk-in vaccination clinic at the Alliant Energy Center, which offers first, second, and booster doses. Hours are from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Wednesdays and Fridays. For more information and to book an appointment, go to publichealthmdc.com. And now on to today's top stories. Nurses at UW Health have been attempting to reunionize for years after Act 10 led to the shutdown of their previous union in 2014. Since 2019, labor leaders and the hospital board have warred over whether the state's collective bargaining laws would permit a union. Now there's a new piece to this unfinished puzzle. WRT producer Nate Buggyhout has the details. Nurses at UW Health have been seeking to unionize for years. Since 2019, they've been demanding solutions to understaffing and long hours, saying they don't feel supported by hospital administration. And throughout a swelling pandemic, they've also continued their fight to unionize, being rebuffed by legal challenges under state law. Now, a new legal memo says that they could be recognized by UW Health's board. The newest memo comes from the state's nonpartisan legislative council, which advises policymakers on legal and policy research. It finds that the UW Health board is not prevented from recognizing a nurses' union, a claim that the board has repeated for years. But that's a reversal from an earlier memo, also written by the nonpartisan legislative council, which found that the nurses could not bargain with UW Health. At the core of the issue, whether or not the nurses can be considered public employees. After Act 10 was passed in 2011, the UW Hospital and Clinics Board dissolved, and nurses had to then negotiate with the similarly-sounding UW Hospital and Clinics Authority. This meant that UW Health nurses would work for a public body but were not considered to be state employees. Thus, the crux of the issue becomes... Are the nurses public or private employees? The newest memo states that the nurses have two real options. It says that while UW Health is not mandated to recognize the union, they are still able to recognize the union voluntarily. This is in contrast to the earlier memo sent by the council in May of this year, which stated that UW Health could not voluntarily recognize the union. The second option, which is included in the original memo, says that the nurses can seek to meet and consult with the UW Hospital and Clinic's authority and board meetings to discuss issues they might have. In a statement made earlier last year, UW Health said that they would work to improve two-way communication with staff at the hospital, but nurses say that that has not been the case. Amanda Klingy is a nurse at UW Health. And although we have shared governance and they say that we have an equal voice, we do not. In fact, the... uh, There's like nine different units, I want to say, of shared governance, and one of them is like the staffing council, and the staffing council doesn't even get to make any decisions about staffing, so that's not really an equal partnership at all, Um, and also if they want to meet and consult, that seems they haven't. We've been asking for three months now, I think, to be included in a board meeting and have been denied every single month. So why the change? After the first memo was sent, the nurses at UW Health turned to Madison law firm Pines Bach, who stated that Act 10 did not prohibit UW Health and Clinics Authority from bargaining with its employees. It only removed the obligation to bargain. After the Pines memo, Senator Melissa Agard urged the council to take a closer look at the issue. I'm not sure that they changed their opinion. 
um, I asked different questions of them and there was clarity provided by them um, in the new memo. And ultimately, you know, we have to realize that Act 10 passed under Governor Walker uh, was pretty damaging to the state of Wisconsin in many different avenues. But one of them, you know, was clearly the removal of collective bargaining rights for public sector workers. And there's been a lot of um, confusion about what that means, seeing that uh, the UW hospital nurses are not directly state employees because of the way the system has been set up. Klinge says labor issues have existed long before the COVID-19 pandemic. So knowing that we faced like the impending staffing crisis that the nation faced uh, back in 2018, UW did staffing reduction through attrition, which means that they don't replace pe- nurses as they leave because they were trying to save money. So that kind of led to the staffing crisis that we're in now, and then you add in the pandemic, and then the wages have decreased also. Well... You can't say they've decreased, but the for new nurses, the wage has decreased, and so it's not competitive as the other hospitals in the area. So it makes it really hard to attract new employees, so we have unsafe staffing numbers now, which affects our patients. The memo states that employees have a fundamental right to self-organize. However, those rights may not cover public employees. Thus, the question comes down to... RUW Health Nurses, public employees. While the memo states no, nurses are not public employees and have a right to form a union, UW Health has remained steadfast in their opinion that they legally cannot voluntarily recognize the union. In a statement to WORT Today, UW Health reaffirmed their position that Act 10 prevents them from voluntarily recognizing any union. The UW Health and Clinics Authority Board plans to meet on Thursday, and it is unclear whether the board will discuss the union. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. After last week's windstorms shook the state, Wisconsinites are looking for ways to help mitigate the effects of climate change. Enter the Dane County Natural Hazards Mitigation Plan, which aims to develop projects with municipalities around the county to make extreme weather events less destructive to our communities. WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Jay McClellan about the program. After storms wrecked havoc across the state last week, preparing for natural hazards has become an important issue for the state of Wisconsin. The Dane County Natural Hazards Mitigation Plan started in 2005 to minimize the future losses caused by natural emergencies. The plan works with municipalities across the county to take steps to keep the damages of events like last week's windstorm to a minimum. 
Yesterday, a public hearing was held at the Sustainability Madison Commission meeting to discuss what the city is doing to prepare for these events. With me today is Jay McClellan, spokesperson for Dane County Emergency Management. Jay, thank you for talking with me today. No worries, Nate. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So starting things off, uh, can you explain to me exactly what the Natural Hazards Mitigation Plan looks to accomplish? Okay. Well, uh, if, if you'll give me a little latitude here. Yes, of course. <laughs> natural Hazard Mitigation Planning is a uh, process that's uh, outlined by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. And it's a very prescriptive process in terms of uh, the the impacts it's supposed to uh, work toward, or the effect it's supposed to work toward, and the process you go through to get there. Uh, key to that process is ensuring that there is a uh, not just a a person working downtown in a brown brick tower saying these are good things to do, but there's actually data, there's information that's sought out, and it's discussed amongst uh, local local steering committees as well as an additional steering committees. It's a communal effort. And carrying through on that, Dane County has built it because Dane County could do a natural hazard mitigation plan on its own. But we reach out to help produce a regional plan offering municipalities in Dane County an opportunity to participate and uh, be part of the natural hazard mitigation plan for Dane County. The, the key part about natural hazard mitigation planning is to reduce the risk that residents face from natural hazards. Uh, traditionally, uh, ever since, well, since forever, uh, flooding has been a problem across the country. And mitigation planning, how do we reduce the impact of flooding? And when FEMA transitioned that over to more natural hazards based versus just flooding, I can't say for sure, uh, before my professional career. But with that, that is the, that is the purpose behind the plan is for part, people participate, or excuse me, municipalities and counties participating in the plan is to look at the impacts from natural hazards and identify steps they can take to reduce the risk that their residents face. So you've mentioned a couple of times that you were working with the municipalities across the county here. What does that look like? How involved is the county in these plans versus how much is the municipalities themselves involved? Well, okay. To, to give a clear picture of that, we need to understand the structure of the plan that FEMA requires. Uh, and I guess if we can back up for just a quick second, uh, the goal of the planning process is to achieve a FEMA-approved natural hazard mitigation plan. It's important for FEMA to approve it because that also opens the door uh, to not only just doing good governmental processes, but also opens the door to municipalities uh, for a potential for additional funding that may help them achieve some of these projects, as well as projects that, say, after a disaster occurs, that there are certain pots of money that have become available for mitigation projects. And, but these mitigation projects have to come from a FEMA-approved natural hazard mitigation plan. So there is the reason to, for many municipalities 
to not only do the good government work, but also to put it in a format and go through the process as prescribed by FEMA to get FEMA's approval on the plan. So from that aside, jumping back to your question, and in the work work that's done as on a as a regional plan, uh, parts of the plan we have to describe clearly uh, what the uh, generally what your municipality and the county look like in terms of population, in terms of structure, in terms of zoning, in terms of development. And Dane County, with our land information office. We have a lot of that information already and readily available at our fingertips. Uh, one thing that we do is help organize and collect that information and put it in the appropriate format so that the municipal plans that are attached to the Dane County Natural Hazard Mitigation Plan, that's one thing that we provide and uh, support municipalities so they don't have to do that. As well, facilitating the process in terms of doing a hazard assessment to do a vulnerability assessment, to do a capability assessment, all those rolled together form what's known as a risk assessment, providing the worksheets to help support the structure so that local uh, steering committees can go through an organized and FEMA-guided, FEMA-prescribed process to provide the information as the, as, in the format that FEMA wants uh, to do that planning effort. And a big part of it is just to get people on the same page to understand the scope of the work that could be done, that can be done, and as well as a, a common understanding and basis of approach to addressing the issues as they present in each municipality and countywide so that there's some consistency across all participating municipalities. What are some of the projects that the county is doing to uh, implement this plan to mitigate the damage during done during these hazardous events? Well, quite frankly, uh, there's a lot of things that uh, people generally may not realize, but definitely have mitigation, uh, <clears throat> have mitigation benefits to it, uh, specifically to... Uh, ensuring that there's access to and also protect, uh, trying to think of the right terminology here, largely buffer zones around natural hazard areas where you have an opportunity to, uh, the uh, Nine Springs E-Way there on the south side of the Beltline <clears throat> with all those reeds and, and the sort of swampy area, that goes a long way in ensuring that water flow as it comes down the Yahara chain uh, has a place to slow up and can be held back a little bit versus rapidly rushing through the Yahara and flooding people even harder further down the way. And ensuring the health of that, ensuring the health of that, uh, of all those reeds is important to maintain the value of the Nine Springs E-Way. So in terms of taking care of runoff, in terms of addressing other development as it grows. These are the kinds of things, as an example, that Dane County has done and is looking to do in other places across the county. So, Jay, really quickly, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share on the plan? I think, bottom line, this is, all right, this is coming from a government guy, but this is plain and simple good government work. This is people who are taking a thoughtful and broad-ranging approach 
to understanding the impacts from natural hazards and looking for ways that they can improve the processes they have, improve the physical structures that exist out there, uh, to reduce the impacts from natural hazard, hazards on residents. And with this, it does take time. And these are projects that generally people don't see right away. But with that being said, they do have benefit and they do have an impact on citizens making them safer. And I guess I know you said to conclude, but one other thing I would like to add as an example, uh, the city of Middleton right now is looking at ways that they can plant better in terms of grasses, in terms of uh, flora, and, and how they maintain it, how mowing goes, because that all has a big impact in the way water runs off and goes into uh, the other tributaries that eventually flow either into the Sugar River or into the Wisconsin River. This is where a long-range look, and specifically on mowing and planting practices by the city, can have an effect on residents. It's not a major effect you'll see the next time this comes around, but you could. And this is where the, the home for these processes and projects lie in the natural hazard mitigation plan. It's a way of improving government processes and important uh, things to make this better. I've been speaking with Jay McClellan, spokesperson for Dane County Emergency Management, about the Natural Hazards Mitigation Plan. Jay, thank you again for talking with me today. Hey, thank you very much for this opportunity. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call looks back at 2021 on the UW-Madison campus. Wildlife Weekly talks owls, foxes, and frogs. And Radio Astronomy delivers an early Christmas present. But now we'll take a quick break and then check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, it's the end of the semester and the Cardinal takes a look at its coverage over the year. And welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by our editor-in-chief, Addison Lathers, to recap the fall semester. Thanks so much for joining us, Addison. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy talking to you, Hope. Me too. I think we had a pretty great semester here at the Cardinal. What do you think were some of the highlights for us as a newspaper? Oh, we had so many great, like, really newbie freshmen, like, first-time reporters who, like, just found us this past semester because, like, 
you know, the student org fair is finally back. We're kind of back in the game as far as like our social media goes. So we had a lot of people find the Daily Cardinal that have never had the chance to work with us before. So we got to see a lot of those fresh faces really take off. And in fact, write a bunch of stories that, you know, I wouldn't have expected to come from, you know, a first semester reporter. So it has been a great semester for us. Yeah, what was it like to return to a newsroom that's sort of been operating in a hybrid style compared to last year when we were totally online? Obviously, Zoom is good for the things that need to be done via Zoom. But being in person, I think, is definitely better, especially if you've ever seen or been in the Daily Cardinal office on campus, our historic underground lair. You would know that that's kind of the place where Students thrive, students learn how the, the tools of writing, the tools of reporting, how to be edited, how to work with an editor. And it's just kind of nice to be back in that environment and to really get the most out of our college experience, I guess, again. Yeah, so the Cardinals' biggest project this semester was our action project. Can you share some of your favorite stories from the action project and what you're taking away from that? Ooh, what to take out of the action project? There were so many little lessons kind of tucked into this bigger story we were trying to tell of how to, you know, how to be better stewards, how to be better community members here at UW-Madison, how to, you know, limit our impact, our negative impact on the community and maximize what we can do to make, you know, Madison thrive. And we had some really creative and interesting stories come out of that. We had a story on, you know, what happens when a fraternity dies, you know, every year, Fraternities and sororities on LinkedIn go out of their way to try to get as many students in the door, to try to get as many students signed up for events, to see who's interested in joining. But especially over COVID, that didn't happen for a lot of fraternities, and more than one of them have had to dissolve. So we got a chance to look at, you know, what really happens when a fraternity has to close its doors. We had other stories looking at the cost benefits of living on campus versus off that were very interesting. And I believe we had a story on the history of housing at UW-Madison that really looked at, you know, how campus housing from dorms to apartments has changed since, well, basically World War II, which was very interesting. A lot of interesting reads that are all available on our website for people to check out if they have some free time. Yeah, so I think one of the most surprising news stories this fall was Chancellor Blank's announcement that she will be leaving at the end of the year. Do you think that that's something that's still kind of on student minds and something that's being talked about on campus still? Yeah, definitely. It feels it feels like we're waiting for something to happen. Like we know right now that the search committee is having its meetings. They've been fully formed. They have selected their, you know, student representatives to serve on this board. We know that they're working on it. We just don't know what's going on right now behind closed doors. So we're all in this kind of waiting period of knowing there are announcements coming soon, but kind of just waiting with bated breath. So I think we're going to see some really exciting announcements coming, especially this spring, as things start to ramp up and things turn towards the public eye a bit more. Yeah, I think one of the biggest changes of this semester from last year was more in-person classes and events, and it really felt like campus sort of came back to life. How did this semester go in terms of COVID-19? It was super interesting. Um, obviously, at the newspaper, well, much like anyone, we were all watching the COVID dashboard for campus, you know, like a hawk. And we saw what was pretty predictable, which was a huge spike of cases at the beginning of the classes. I think our high previously was about 65 cases reported in one day about a week into class start classes starting 
And we expected it to go down. And surely enough, it did. Over the course of time, our university really got a hold on contact tracing. Um, We got a hold on quarantining. There was actually never that many students in quarantine in Eagle Heights. It kind of took a downturn and stayed like that for several months. And then we've had a huge spike in this past week. We smashed our previous record of 65 cases in a day with, I believe, 76 cases in a day on Thursday. And now we're kind of waiting to see what it looks like in the next few days. I believe we'll get a report for today or tomorrow, which is on the the next Monday and Tuesday pretty soon. But we're waiting to see what that looks like now that so many students are testing positive right before our senior graduation. What do we know about what the spring semester will look like in terms of COVID precautions? We know two things right now. We know that, well, we know that the university is going to keep an eye on it. We're going to keep our dashboard. We're going to keep testing, but it's going to look a little different. So two things. First of all, the university is shutting down, I believe, three testing sites, and our only testing site open is going to be the university club. That's all good and dandy, but what are we going to do to replace the rest of those places, especially right now when we're rapidly running out of appointments left and right? Well, the university is going to replace those testing centers with at-home rapid tests. But what we don't know is how you're going to get those tests and kind of what the turnaround is going to look like on that, how they're going to be delivered, how students are going to be able to get their hands on these tests. So I expect we'll learn more about that in the coming weeks as the university kind of finalizes this plan. But hopefully this spring is going to look a lot easier. It's going to look like a lot less scheduling, running to different buildings between classes to get tested. Um, And obviously, um, unvaccinated students and employees are going to be required to keep testing in person on campus. That is one part of this. And the Dane County mask mandate was just recently, well, today, a few (laughs) couple minutes ago, extended till February. And we know based on what the university says that the university itself has already extended its mask mandate. We know that looking at the Dane County's mask mandate, the university will likely extend its mask mandate beyond what the county is recommending to keep an eye on how cases rise or fall. So if I had to bet, we're probably going to see another university mask mandate extension going into the middle slash towards the end of the spring semester. Yeah, just looking at all of our coverage overall in the past year, are there any stories or trends that you've really been proud of us going out there to cover? We have had some great breaking news coverage lately of our campus area. We have had our associates editor, who is now stepping down, um, Samantha Henschel, doing great coverage of mask mandates, um, of different uh, you know COVID cases rising and lowering. And we've had our city editor, who is now moving over to our associates desk, actually, doing his second stint as an editor, Jackson Mozena, doing great coverage of kind of, you know, various campus dramas, how they relate to the community and city and those kind of intertwining relationships, um, covering that very closely as well. We also have had some writers step up and really embrace breaking news like Tyler Katzenberger. We had amazing, almost second by second coverage of that supposed gas leak on campus. We knew where cops were. We knew what streets were closing down. We knew what dorms were being, you know, potentially closed down. And we all knew that really fast. And we had coverage out really quickly, thanks to our very excited new staffers. And I can say that I confidently believe that that kind of enthusiasm will continue into the spring semester. Yeah, looking forward to the spring semester, are there any stories or issues that you will expect and hope the Cardinal will take a look at in the next couple of months? 
We know we want to continue our coverage of how the university handles COVID. Obviously, we'd like to continue our coverage of dorms and housing around campus. And we're going to continue our coverage of, obviously, the chancellor's search. Just kind of some main big topics that everyone is looking to the campus right now to see those changes. And we also are preparing for our spring action project, really looking at how we're going to take an in-depth look at another topic around campus, which we will be announcing very soon. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us, Addison. And here's to another great Cardinal semester. Of course, I'm excited to see it. That's all for our Cardinal call this week. Thank you for joining us this semester. We'll be back in January with new episodes. The Cardinal staff takes some time off during winter break, but check us out at dailycardinal.com for breaking news stories. We also have a lot of great stories to read any time of the year under our in-depth news tab. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Wisconsin is home to a host of different critters, and odds are they will make their way through the Dane County Humane Society at some point. On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg tells us about all the different animals in the center this week. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about our patients that are here in care right now. It is the end of December, and that means we are headed into the holiday season, and we actually tend to get pretty busy around this time of year. And it's not because we have babies, because baby season doesn't really happen until March or April, uh, but we actually see a lot of patients coming in that are raptor species. We see a lot of adult mammals coming through, injured songbirds, and then also a good number of reptiles and amphibians that actually are found in people's houses. Maybe you brought your plants in from overnight, you know, before it started with freezing temperatures and that plant has been sitting in your basement or in a nice warm room and all of a sudden you hear frog sounds. That happened yesterday and we now have a beautiful tree frog, Eastern. Uh, whether it's a gray frog or if it's a copse gray tree frog, it's hard to tell the difference, but it's a beautiful little friend. We also have an American toad that was found out from, you know, hibernation a little earlier in that warm stretch that we had who had some issues with the uh, tissue on his feet, maybe some frostbite from the temperature changes. We had some wild swings up and down. Uh, so those are our two newest patients right now, tree frog and toad. But we still have all of our turtles that are here overwintering, plus three of them that were kept actually as pets that have uh, metabolic bone disease, which is going to be a very long road to recovery, unfortunately. Poor husbandry and nutrition can cause metabolic bone disease, which is um, not enough calcium, basically. So they've got a shell and they've got bones that really, they need that extra calcium and, and we have to give it actually orally through a supplement to be able to give them enough to hopefully at least become stable from the condition that they were in. One of the coolest new patients that we have is a gray fox. This gray fox is an adult male, beautiful, beautiful fox. It was found up in the Adams Friendship area, but because there are not really many rehabilitators in our state, 
We did admit it here, uh, thanks to Sauk County Humane Society and their transport team, helping us to get it partway across the state here. And it does have neurological symptoms. Um, you know, we see a lot of fox that might come in depressed and maybe wobbly and they can't walk very well, maybe with a head tilt, uh, maybe some tremors. And that's what this fox looked like. A little brighter today, but the first thing on our minds usually is, you know, does this animal have canine distemper, which is obviously a virus that can very negatively affect wildlife. And there are many outbreaks of this throughout the state of Wisconsin. Maybe we think rabies could be trauma causing a neurological problem, but we didn't see any evidence of physical trauma on an exam, which makes us then think about disease as more specialized and something more specific in this particular case. Sometimes neurological symptoms can be caused by certain parasites, or we're looking at something like a poisoning, like a baited mouse that maybe has caused seizures. We don't see seizures, so we're definitely thinking more along the lines again of disease. So we've got some testing, diagnostic tests that we've run. Uh, we'll be looking at a lot of different indicators and our vets will be helping us you know, through the UW-Madison Special Species Program to determine whether or not this is a case that we'll be able to even treat. Because unfortunately for canine distemper, once a wild fox or canid coyote, even your dogs, if they're not vaccinated, you know, can get canine distemper. Uh, crossing our fingers and hopeful that maybe it's not, but definitely symptoms are, are present that could be aligned with that. Uh, we also have two eastern screech owls in care. One is a gray morph and one is a red morph. So that means that there are two different plumage variations of screech owls. So they're little diminutive owls. One's just a, you know, probably about the, as tall as your hand, if you were to go from your palm to your tip of your fingers. Uh, that's a, our gray screech owl. And then the red one is a little bit bigger. So it could be female potentially, uh, both coming in with ocular trauma or head trauma. Uh, and then a number of other raptors. So we've got our barred owl in care that has um, a, a detached retina, which is very difficult to treat. Uh, it's not going to be something that will recover in that one eye. But since owls are uh, monocular vision users, meaning they can use one eye to look at things, it is possible that we may be able to uh, continue rehabilitation with this owl if the other eye is in good condition. It's not easy to assess that and it takes a lot of time and care and a lot of treatment. So we're, you know, case by case basis on that bird. Uh, and then we've got a Cooper's hawk on the way today, but lots of other raptors that are outside, a red tail hawk that is here for some, some prey training and testing here before release. It came in with ocular injuries and a clavicle fracture. Uh, and then we also have a goose that is here with us, kind of a sad case that, you know, he had some internal parasites, uh, Giardia and potential Trichomonas, which is a little flagellated parasite that you can find in the esophagus and the oral cavity. It had a puncture wound uh, to its coelom, which the coelom is the inner body cavity of a bird. And we also say that for reptiles. And so, you know, just kind of feeling sad, not really eating really well, trying to give as much fluid support as possible. Um, and we moved him outside uh, into a temporary holding enclosure where he's a little more isolated and, and seems like he's uh, enjoying the solitude a little bit more, which is great, rather than being in our indoor treatment facility, which can be a little busier with lots of new patients coming in. So those are our main species. And then for mammals, we have uh, three gray squirrels that will be with us over winter, um, unfortunately brought up by the public uh, and are very tame, you know, having them for a couple months uh, from juvenile to pre-adult. So we're going to try our best to limit our uh, activity and interactions with them and see if some time away can help reduce those um, instincts to, you know, either be friendly with people or approach people. That is always the most challenging part of rehabilitation is if you didn't get to them soon enough. 
Sometimes the behavior is not adequate for release, and that could be the case with these squirrels. So it really uh, pushes the importance of getting those animals to a rehabilitator as soon as possible. And then a uh, possum that came in with some dog bites and some rib fractures, and he just moved outside this week, and that is so happy. And on the list, we have released a number of great horned owls this week. We have released a white-breasted nuthatch and three house finches and uh, just a plethora of a whole lot of other species, another possum and uh, even more. So we've been really successful in our rehabilitation and release right now, but we're just starting to see all the rest of them come in for this winter season. So if you're thinking of us over the holiday season, uh, definitely you know check our website at www.giveshelter.org. If you wanna you know give anything towards the holidays, we've got some humane holidays with Mounds, who's got a lot of supplies that we actually use here in wildlife, you know, bird seed and lots Lots of fun things. Uh, check us out and look at some information. If you need any help with an animal, you know, if you need capture technique or containment instructions, or just in general want to browse the website to see what we've got available for our upcoming internships and our, you know, our staffing. So give us a look and if you have any questions about an animal that you might have found, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. And then also note that on holidays, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, and New Year's Day, the Wildlife Center will be open for only shortened hours from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. every day. But please leave us a voicemail if you do have an animal in need, and we will try to get back to you as soon as possible. And we do have overnight care instructions that uh, we have available on our website if needed. Generally, no food, no water. Just keep it in a quiet, warm, safe space until you can admit it the next day. So we appreciate your flexibility with that during holiday hours. And otherwise, we are here to help you with wildlife, sick, injured, or whether or not you just have questions. So thanks for listening. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Some people want a new car for Christmas, others a good book. But for the radio astronomy crew, nothing brings the cheer like a brand new satellite. Andrew Nine of the radio astronomy crew tells us about the James Webb's telescope. Good evening and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight on this holiday special edition, I'd like to talk about the great big gift that astronomy is getting this year, the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST for short, which is scheduled to launch from French Guiana at 6.20 a.m. Central Time this Friday, December 24th. No doubt you've heard quite a bit about it over the past few weeks, and we here on Radio Astronomy have talked about it before. But it's really hard to overstate just how awesome JWST is as an instrument and how much of a game changer JWST will be for astronomy. First, a recap of what JWST is as an instrument. JWST, operated jointly by NASA and the European Space Agency, is the latest space-based observatory that will help astronomers study the sky, much like the Hubble Space Telescope. Where Hubble focused on ultraviolet and optical light, JWST will be optimized to study infrared light, which has a longer wavelength. If you've seen a picture of JWST, you may have noticed that its mirrors are gold rather than a more traditional silver color. 
This is because gold reflects longer wavelengths of light, such as infrared, much more strongly than shorter wavelengths, giving it its distinctive color and making it the perfect material for JWST to study the infrared. JWST is also much larger than Hubble, with a mirror almost three times as wide, which will give JWST a much higher resolution. JWST will also have some of the coolest cameras in astronomy, literally. Because it's designed to study infrared light, JWST has to keep most of its structure really cold at just 40 Kelvin, or 40 degrees Celsius above absolute zero, the coldest possible temperature. The mid-infrared instrument, or MIRI, will be kept even colder at just 7 Kelvin. If these components were any warmer, the infrared light they would give off by virtue of their own heat would seriously interfere with the images that JWST will collect. JWST has one more trick up its sleeve to help it produce as much awesome science as possible, its orbit. JWST will orbit at a special place in space known as the second Lagrangian point, or L2 for short. The gravitational poles from both the Sun and the Earth interact with each other in a complicated way, and in certain special points, they act together in such a way that if something is put there, it tends to stay put. These points are called the Lagrange points. L2 is located about 1.5 million kilometers behind Earth with respect to the Sun. This spot is ideal because JWST can get all the sunlight it needs for power without having to worry about the temperature shifts that would result from passing in and out of Earth's shadow. Once JWST is launched, it will take about a month for JWST to arrive at L2. But why all the focus on infrared light? It turns out that infrared light can help us understand a lot about the universe, from its earliest days to the stars and planets close to home. There's a lot we don't know about the early days of the universe. Starting from about 400,000 years after the Big Bang, there was nothing in the universe besides loose collections of hydrogen and helium. Starting at around 150 million years after the Big Bang, and lasting for about 1 billion years, the first stars and galaxies began to form. These stars were responsible for creating the first heavy elements from the primordial hydrogen and helium, allowing for things like planets, moons, and eventually people to exist. At the same time, they ionized the gas around them, separating electrons from atomic nuclei. This era is known as the Epoch of Reionization. This part of the history of the universe is so hard to study because these stars are so far away. As the universe expands, light from distant sources gets stretched out to longer and longer wavelengths in a process known as redshift. The stars and galaxies responsible for the epoch of reionization are so distant that any ultraviolet or visible light they emitted has been stretched into the infrared. JWST will allow us to peer into this mysterious past, giving us unprecedented insight into this part of our history. JWST will also allow us to study things considerably closer to home, exoplanets. We've detected more than 4,000 exoplanets already thanks to missions like Kepler and TESS. However, JWST will absolutely change the game here. Because planets absorb heat from their host stars and radiate it away, they can be seen most easily in the infrared. Rather than relying on an exoplanet to cross in front of its host star, JWST will be able to directly observe far more exoplanets than was possible before, giving us incredible insight into the properties of these exoplanets. One weird thing that JWST might be able to pick up on, plants. It so happens that chlorophyll, the compound that allows plants to convert carbon dioxide to oxygen and gives them their green color, also reflects very strongly in the infrared. In fact, this reflectivity is so strong that it has its own name, 
the red edge. The red edge has long been proposed as a possible biosignature, a sign of life outside Earth. If there are exoplanets that have plants, and if those plants use chlorophyll, JWST might be able to spot them. With all this exciting science in store, JWST will absolutely be worth the wait. This is Andrew Nine from Radio Astronomy. Thank you for tuning in, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Nate Wegehaupt produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with Manuel Patio. Good night.